Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Brienne Davis. She's an actress, director, wife, and mom. She's the author of Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. Brienne, welcome. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I hit record. Okay, good. We're just going to have some fun. Let's do it. So I feel like it's kind of appropriate that we're like talking after Memorial because your daddy served... Mm -hmm. And that was something that I heard you say in an interview with your husband that was really important to you and your grandfather served as well. Yeah, um, it runs in my family. And that's why I'm so supportive of the troops and going on USO tours all over the Middle East I've done and just being of service to the people that risk their lives for our freedom. That means a lot to me. I mean, even if you don't agree with politics and the war and everything, you need to support the troops because they are putting their life on the line for us. Oh my God. It is so crazy to see like the drone footage of how many people have lost their lives. I know it's, it's really sad. And, and I think we take that for granted. We don't live in a country other than nine 11 that get bombed or invaded. And I think as Americans, we take that for granted. You know, I do too. I have like first class problems and I'm like, ah, I can't get that coffee maker to work and it's like come on lady people are literally giving their lives and you're complaining about a cup of coffee yeah what was your daddy like that's hard for me to talk about I mean I've discussed it a couple of times but you know my mom did say when he came back from Vietnam he was very very disconnected and I'll get as detailed as I can without disrespecting him but he you know had a lot of PTSD and wasn't present for the marriage and his wife and used to go sometimes in the bedroom and turn off the lights and then you wouldn't see him. So it was hard. It was hard. I think, you know, that got put on my childhood a lot, but yeah, made me who I am today. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, like, do you think that has played into your relationship at all? Completely. It completely, I always wanted daddy's attention. I wanted to be daddy's little girl. I monopolized his time. And I definitely think I, you know, my sister and I became more important than their marriage. And that definitely affected me not knowing how to have healthy relationships, you know, communication, talking about finances. Like I never got those tools from my childhood because I just was wanting dad's attention. And kind of taking it all. And, and, and he loved that. He loved that his two little girls loved him, but I think that's very unbalanced for a kid's energy to be going to the parent should be the parent's energy going to the kid. So, yeah. wow. Yeah. So There's a lot of trauma in that back. <laughs> wow. Yeah. How did your mom respond to that? You know, you, my mom was a really strong woman and she you know, looked at her marriage as not working out as a lot of couples do and just trying to get through it. And she became a 
she had jobs. She was a workaholic. She, you know, put a lot into her career. And I think I got my drive from her as a career. I'm a very strong oriented. I want to make my own money. I don't want to be, you know, reliant on anyone. But as a woman, I wasn't taught you know, that femininity and, and having that in the relationship. So I feel like I turned more into the guy where I, you know, put my masculinity first, but it was hard on my mom. I think, you know, watching her two girls love their father and her not having a great relationship with him was probably difficult for her. Were you able to talk to her about it? We have talked about it since we've sat down and we've talked about, you know, the dynamic, how messed up the dynamic was when I was younger, but that took, you know, 11 years of recovery in my 12 step program and sex and love addiction that took many therapy sessions and her reading my book, you know, really was a big opener for us. Like she got to see my side and then I got to see her as a woman and a wife and all that. When you're a young kid, you don't look at how difficult it is to be a mom and a wife and a career. Like, oh, it's so much work to have that all. So we got on the other side of it and we're in a good place. And I think that's all that matters now. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Talk to me about your book and was it based on real stories? I think you alluded to that, right? Yeah, it's called Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. It is based on real stories. It was a memoir first when I first wrote it, which I never wanted to write a book. I wasn't interested. I'm dyslexic. I have ADHD. I, you know, I'm an actress for 20 years, but I I don't want to be a writer. And I wrote the first draft in 45 days after my husband pretty much like write this book. You need to write. You need to write. And I was like, leave me alone. What are you talking about? And yeah, I wrote it as a memoir and my life story. But when I was in rewrites with my editor and working it out, I kept getting all these dreams and other people's stories and then flashbacks that I didn't remember. And so I just decided to throw it all in there. Like I just was writing and writing it down and rewriting. And then I realized, okay, it's not a memoir anymore. And I can't say it's a memoir because I don't want to get sued, which can happen. And then I was like, but it's my story and it's self-help because there's these rules and it's kind of like a chick lit where you go on this fun Hollywood behind the scenes journey. And then so I found out I could make it a Roma Clef fiction, which is based on real life, but you can change names and amplify and put other stories in. And so, yeah, it's a fiction, it's a novel, but you know, you can try to guess which stories are mine and which are made up, or you can try to guess who superstar, cool girl, tattoo girl, all the characters have made up names. So it's like a fun game. You could try to figure it out if you want. <laughs> That's like reality TV. Like right? there's truth to it, but there's also parts that are stretched. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh and that was gosh. fun to write it like that because when I was doing the first draft, it was like, it was like, you know, when you're like telling all the like worst of the worst and the dirty secrets and the things you've done, you're not proud of and the immoral and just even the thoughts. It's like a one long attic share. And it's just, I really wanted to write something that helped people understand the addiction, but entertained them. Because when I started my recovery almost 12 years ago, I, every book I read was so educational and and clinical. And I would hate 
reading it and I would throw it against the wall. And so I just wanted to make it easier to understand. So you get in the mind of what an addict goes through. And that's, but when I first was writing as a memoir, I'm like, oh, I don't want to put this out there. It's like putting your diary. It's like worse than your diary out there. <laughs> yeah, that would be painful for sure. It's very painful. And then I had to, I had to read the audible book. I was like the audio book. I was like, what do you mean? I have to go and record the book. And they were all like, oh no, you have to do it. And I'm like, can't we get an actress to do it? And they're all looking at me like, you're an actress. What are you talking about? And people like to hear the author. I was like, oh my God, I have to sit in a sound booth, read all the worst things I've ever done or thought of doing or thought and in front of a, bun- a dude. It was so embarrassing. I wanted to crawl out of my skin every day. I think I ate a bag of chips like every day I was recording. I was like, I am eating my feelings. This is really <laughs> uncomfortable. Please get you me out of the tell. <laughs> Oh my God, girl, you don't understand. I was like sweating, like, oh, and then I have to repeat. So it's very graphic sexually. You know, it goes there because I want you to know what it feels like to be a sex and love addict and uh, reading those parts. Oh, Brutal, brutal. I do think it's hard for people to actually understand that because I have known a couple. Ooh, I love it. I have known a couple <laughs> sex addicts that that they were in therapy or in a program mm-hmm. for years and years. And okay. can you ever turn it off? I believe not, honestly. I mean, other people can have their opinions. I've, I'm a lifer is what I call it. I'm an old timer with this much time. And I just know that my addict brain always wants to use people to film me. Like an alcoholic uses a bottle of alcohol. I want to use friendships, lovers, my partner, you know, my family. It's every relationship we use. And I think that's where people get tripped up about it. They think sex, sex and love addict, like we're all just going around sleeping with everybody. It's not like that. Yes, you go and have one night stands, cheat, have multiple partners at a time, get obsessed with social media and DMing and the likes and all that. But then the other side, it's like, you want to be loved. So you go after the unavailable person. You keep going back to bad relationships. You flirt, you intrigue, you're doing whatever you can to get your needs met. And if you think about it, if you think about it, a lot of people in your life probably have it. They have this fantasy of what a relationship looks like. They're like going out there trying to find that person to fix them, to be their soulmate. And I have to tell you, I think our society is drowning in this addiction and nobody wants to admit it. <laughs> How can a spouse mm-hmm. understand a partner that's going through it? Well, I always like to say, and this is the most important, and this is one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I do help a lot of spouses and I work with a lot of couples and have taken couples through understanding the addict and understanding the codependent or the Al-Anon side of it. It's not your fault. That's the first thing I say. I, I say you can be the most perfect partner. You could be the ideal partner and it wouldn't matter. It has nothing to do with you. When you are a sex and love addict, you are not in reality. You are in fantasy and you're always looking for that next best thing, that high. And when you're with a partner for a long time, you can't get that high from them. So if someone goes outside of the relationship or is on porn too much or masturbating or 
cheating or whatever they're doing, it has nothing to do with you. And that is the one thing I hope this book helps people that the ripple effect of when an addict acts out, that it's not your fault. There is a way to get on the other side, but both of you have to do the work. And unfortunately, it is a two-person job. The partner for like my husband. So let me just tell you about my husband and I. We've been together for 16 years. We didn't get married until we were 10 years together. But I got in recovery when we were together. And for him, you know, my first year of recovery in sex and love addiction, we didn't have sex for the first year. No sex. And we lived together. And we were boyfriend and girlfriend. And that must that have was, been hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And I have to tell you, he, you know, really was empathetic, compassionate, understanding. And I think the beautiful thing about my husband is he's also in a 12 step program. He has 32 years in AA. So he understood that he could be the most perfect individual. And I was just acting out because I like didn't love myself, wanted to ruin our relationship because. I'm afraid he's going to abandon me or leave me. And I'm unlovable and unworthy of that, you know, love. He wasn't allowed to fix it. You know how guys like to fix it. So for me, he wasn't allowed. If I was crying, he couldn't comfort me. He couldn't come and give me a hug. He couldn't ask me what was the matter. We had a very strict boundary. Like I had to do my work. I had to go to therapy twice a week. I had to go to my meetings. I had to talk to my sponsor. I had to work my steps, which my steps took nine years. It was pure torture. But yeah, it was really hard, but we made it through. And I have to tell you, our relationship is amazing now. Like I couldn't ask for more. It's two equal people coming together. If he leaves me, I will be okay. And I couldn't say that before I did this. If someone left me, my world would shatter. Or I, if I felt like they were leaving, I would blow it up. So then I had an out, you know, I would be the bad guy. Not to be driven by other people is the best thing in the world, especially as a woman. Like I can walk down the street, no one flirts with me, no one asks me out, no one tries to, you know, give me their energy. And it's just such a freeing place to be. And I, and before I was like a, I say it was like, I was like using everyone as an ATM machine, like give, give, give me the money, take, come on, take, 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 take. And now it's not like that. And it's just beautiful existence. That's amazing. When did you know that you were an addict? Here's the thing. I write about a lot of bottoms in the book and I take you through and they're kind of all jumbled up and my official bottom was I thought I was good. You know, my my boyfriend, who's my husband now, I said we were living together and things were good. I, I wasn't flirting. I wasn't intriguing. I wasn't going outside of the relationship in any way. And what happened was I thought it was this stage in my life, like an early 20s. You know, I just, you know, we like to have fun. I flirt. It's my personality. You know how people say that? And you're like, okay. A mentor of mine died suddenly have a heart attack. And I found myself two days later on location, shooting a movie in another city across the country. And I just started like flirting and and intriguing as if you've never heard of it. Some people haven't heard of it, but it's, it's like a step up from flirting. It's like giving someone your number, acting like you're available or saying yes to a date when you really don't mean yes. That's kind of, it's just the bump up the next level of flirting. So I started doing that and I was like this close to going outside my relationship and blowing it up. And I was looking in a mirror at this hotel, motel, whatever it was like a holiday in. 
at looking in the dark at myself and I said, oh my God, am I going to do it again? Like before I just thought, you know, the relationships I had weren't really real because the butterflies went away. The high of love went away. The first feelings of love, like that's what I was addicted to. Like that is the best high in the world. They say it's is better than cocaine, which I've never done cocaine, but it's this feeling of euphoria, right? When that goes away, I was like, oh, that's not a real relationship. Like, oh, it's supposed to be like that forever. I had this warped sense of what a relationship looked like. But yeah, so I was sitting in the hotel room and I was about to act out with this person I didn't even like as a person. And it just hit me. It was like I floated out of my body. I was like, wait a minute. I have someone at home I really love and care about as much as I can, right, at this time. Like I really, if we weren't together, I'd want to be his best friend. And here's this other person that I don't even like who's not really that cute. Like he's kind of an a-hole if you know what I mean and I'm about to do like what am I doing it was this such an out-of-body experience and that was the moment that was the moment I said I can't be doing this what if I'm doing this till I'm 80 years old on my deathbed like am I gonna be never connected to another soul on this planet completely am I gonna have one foot in and one foot out and that to me was more tragic what's so interesting to me is that that was in response to a traumatic event yeah And that's what people say, you know, I have a lot of people that come in and said, I thought that part of my life was over. I thought I don't do that anymore. Cause I tell a lot of people, if you're listening, if you resonate with like going back to bad relationships or going for that unavailable person or going from relationship to relationship is what I did. You know, I've never had a night one night stand. I haven't had many sexual partners, but that still makes me a sex and love addict there. But there's these 40 questions, right? It's these Mm. 40 self-diagnosed Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, you can go on, type in 40 self-diagnosed questions online. And there's these 40 questions and I tell people to go fill it out. And what they do, (laughs) it's hilarious. They fill it out like in the now instead of their whole life. And I said, no, no, no. Like, have you done that ever in your whole life? And they're like, well, I did in my 20s, but I haven't done it in now. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. You've still done it. It's a yes. Uh, Just because you don't do it now, because what happens is life is like this. And when trauma happens, old behaviors pop up that we thought went away. So I try to say, like, look at it in your whole life. Did you do that in your whole life? Have you tried to look for someone to fix you? Have you had sex when you didn't want to have sex? It's like questions like that. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) It sounds like that could apply to a lot of people. Well, when I tell you these questions, they do. It's like, have you lost count of the numbers of partners have you had? Have you had sex in inappropriate places at inappropriate times? Have you turned off your sexuality after a bad breakup and refused to be sexual? Have you used masturbation or porn not to feel your feelings? Have you tried to look for someone to fix you? I mean, it goes on and on. And it's questions that if you get five or more yeses, they say, maybe it's something you should look into. What got you to fill that out? So I called a friend who hooked me up with her therapist and I went and saw it. And I talk about this in the book and it is the most uncomfortable therapy session known to man. I walk you through it and you know, she looks at me and she says, and I talk about this in the book a lot. She says two things to me. And the first one, she said, hmm, you have a secret and I don't know what it is. And then we were kept talking. And then she said, oh, you wear the mask of one of my other clients. That's a high class prostitute. And I was like, 
what what I'm an actress I have been on, I'm working on like shows like I was like I have never had a one night stand I have never been paid for sex not that there's anything wrong with any of those things but I was so taken aback by this woman saying that to me and my devil horns came up and I was like, I'm going to be out of here. I'm paying you $200 and you're insulting me. And then we kept talking. I didn't get up, but I was so close to walking out. And she said at the, like towards the end, she said, oh, I know what it is. You're a sex and love addict. And I was like, what? What? That's a guy problem. That's like a Tiger Woods problem. That's somebody that gets caught cheating and makes an excuse where I haven't had a one night stand. Like it went off on this tangent, just like Roxanne does in the book. <laughs> and she said, yeah, no, you can still be a sex and love addict. And most women are love addicts and most men are sex addicts, but a lot of them are both and they don't realize it. And I think you are. And I think you need to fill out these 40 questions and she printed them up and we went through them and my number was outrageous. <laughs> I'll just, I mean, it's in the book. So everybody, if you're reading it, but I got a 38 out of 40 and it was blindly obvious. I had this problem and I got in my car and I was driving down the 101 on Los Angeles and crying my eyes out. Like probably I look crazy to all the people next you know you see people like <gasps> like sloppy just like mascara like a like I looked crazy and I called that's my so LA anyway I know yeah. you're like <gasps> they're like she's practicing for a scene like that's <laughs> probably what they're thinking <laughs> and I call my boyfriend who we live together as you know and I said she says I'm a sex and love like he was like, what? I was like, she says I'm a sex and love addict. Like, he's like, she says you're a sex and love addict? I'm like, yeah, that I got to go to a meeting. Like, And I get home and he prints up all the meetings in Los Angeles and highlights all the meetings I can go to because she wanted me to go to a meeting right away. And I went that night walked into a room on a Wednesday night in the middle of the va- deep in the valley at a church, which I was, I'm not religious. It's that was the day I, I heard 30 other people that were nothing like me. And I talk about, you know, the first time, the moment sharing and all that in the book. And I go into details, but I remember looking around and thinking, oh my God, there's an A-list celebrity. There's a social worker. There's an elementary school teacher. There's a CEO. There's a guy in a business suit. I don't know what he does. He looks like a banker. And then like somebody had their name tag on. They work somewhere else. And it was just like every walk of life, every age group, every ethnicity, religious background, sexual orientation, every single person you can imagine all in this room. And they all spoke and they said something that I thought I've done or I've said. And it was the first time in my life that I didn't feel broken or alone. And that's the day I surrendered completely. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. What is the difference between a sex and love addict? Oh, I love this question because people don't understand. So this is how I, I break it down really easily. It can get more complicated than this, but so let's look at the sex addict side. So sex addict side is you use sex more than the actual person. So you are with a person, but you're usually using them for this sexual get off, right? So it's like masturbation, porn also, one night stands, going online, DMing, looking for that one night stand, those kind of activities, you know? Ashley Madison, a lot of people with with that side uses Ashley Madison cheating on their spouses, that kind of thing. 
Then on the other side is the love addiction side. And that's where you are addicted to a specific person or you jump from people to people. That's where you have relationships overlap. You always have someone in the wing. You're flirting, you're intriguing, you're DMing people on Instagram to get them to like you, to give you attention, to have um, emotional like affairs. You're always in fantasy looking for the perfect relationship, the soulmate, the person to fix you. You go back to the unavailable person. You go back to that bad relationship over and over and over again, trying to get that unavailable person to love you. And usually there's a combination, like it's like somebody's addicted to somebody, but then they swing the other way and act out sexually and then they swing back. So it's like usually a combination, but it's really what we, the problem is we have our sexuality and intimacy and we don't know how to connect them. And that's the problem where we think, you know, it has to be all encompassing. A relationship is all encompassing and that's not what a healthy relationship is. It is, should not consume your life. So, and my last thing I'm going to say is no one's going to fix you. There is no such thing as a soulmate. What you learn in the program and what you learn as a recovered sex and love addict is that you can't look for anybody to complete you and that you are your own soulmate. So at the bottom of it, it's actually finding your self-love and self-worth because underneath all that behavior we do when we use people It's fear of abandonment, fear of not being enough, lack of worthiness, fear of intimacy, like it's too much, it's too painful. So those are the things that lie underneath it. But it's all about finding yourself love in yourself, you know? Does it have anything to do with attraction? I mean, it can be and it can't be. You know, sometimes you're attracted to people that are unavailable because you're unavailable. Something yeah. in you is attracting attracted to that. And that's where a lot of people get like murky. They're like, but he's everything and he's so available. I'm like, no, he's not. He's not calling you when he says he's not going to call you. He's not showing up. He's not doing those things. He's you know, the hot and cold, they get addicted to the hot and cold, but then you can act out with people you're not attracted to. It's not a clear cut disease. It's very gray, you know, with alcoholics or, you know, uh, any of the chemical diseases, you stop doing them. But with sex and love addiction, it's about relationships and you can't cut relationships out of your life. You have to get rid of them for a while and learn some boundaries and learn some rules and some self-love and all that work that you do that is exhausting and the most painful thing imaginable. I mean, we had a heroin addict that was recovered for like 20 years. And he said, I can quit heroin, but I can't quit her. Like this is more painful than heroin addiction. Wow. That to me was like such a reality check for me. It's really hard to get over this addiction. Our Turnout rate is probably 5% of the people that were there a decade ago are still there. They say 6% of the United States are sex and love addicts and 38% of them are women. And I just have to tell you that statistic was six years ago and it's like quadrupled the amount of people in the program now. It's a huge problem, especially with social media and this younger generation. They don't know how to connect their intimacy to their sexuality. They're getting desensitized by too much porn, too much, you know, sexuality too early with, you know, Instagram and TikTok and all that. It's so like inundated with sex that it's desensitizing their brains. How has your husband been able to stick through that for 16 years? I think because he's in recovery, we now have 
such clear boundaries with each other. And we have our own language now. We, you know, not saying 12 steps is the only way to get out of addiction. I know other people that have done other programs, therapy, I had to do both. But I think because I communicated so much, we discussed it so much. We almost over communicate as two people. Like we, we say, you know, I statements, this is how I feel when you said this, this is how it made me, you know, like we do like really big communications and we talk about God a lot in our higher power and knowing that he has his own God. I have my own God, my son, which I have a child now, his has his own God. And I get to, yeah, we, I never wanted kids. I was like too selfish and self-seeking, but we have a three-year-old and it's really beautiful. I think the best thing about recovery, other than helping people and spreading the message of experience, strength, and hope is that I get to pass on healthy boundaries to my son. I don't use my son to fill me. I don't say, give mommy a hug because she's having a bad day. It's not his job to give me a hug because I've had a bad day. Like that's not a kid's responsibility. And, you know, my husband and I demonstrate a healthy relationship in front of him. We say, we say kind words to each other. If we have intense discussions, we try not to do it in front of him. But if we do, we do it in a constructive way where he can learn how, because I don't, I think it's healthy for kids to see fights, but if they're constructive fights, you know? Yeah. So if we can carry on addiction stopping before my son, then we've done our job, you know? If it doesn't go any further than us, that would be amazing. Okay, so you brought up boundaries too. Boundaries. You have been successful as a director, a producer, an actor, and now an author. Boundaries are super important in Hollywood. Can we talk Uh, about that? I mean, it is. I mean, over the years, I'm sure I've crossed some people's boundaries, but now the boundaries are so clear because you have to, you know, keep in your lane. And when you go into other people's lane or you try to put your will on top of their, you know, what they're trying to do, it causes conflict. I've had a couple moments that I'm not proud of with one producer in particular, and I talk about it in the book. So (laughs) you'll have to figure that one out. But you know, in Hollywood, you just keeping your side of the street clean, you know, going in being a worker among workers, a lot of people go in and want to be the star and have all this attention flaunted on them. And I was like that too, when I started 20 something years ago, but being just a working actor, like I'm an everyday working actor, I'm not like the person on the billboard. And I'm really proud of that, that I haven't broken too many bridges. I, my ego wasn't out of control. I didn't become a huge narcissist and I'm just a worker among workers. I'm there to do my part in my job. And if I'm directing, I, you know, have to step into that position, which I love directing more than anything. You have to keep yourself checked. Can you talk to me about directing and kind of who mentored you there? I know you got to spend some time on Homeland. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. I love it. Yeah. So I, you know, on six, the first season of six, there was a couple of female directors, Kimberly Pierce and Leslie Linka Gladder, who is the, you know, run main Homeland producer. And she was our producer. And it was just amazing to get under her wing. And she let me shadow her during two episodes of six when I was acting, but then I'd be with her, you know, going to location scouts, learning the trade, how to do a shot list on the weekends. And then she gave me the chance of a lifetime. She said, you know, when you're done rapping, we start Homeland in New York. It, you want to come and 
shadow me on Homeland for two episodes. And it was the premiere and the second episode. And I was like, oh my God, yes. And here's this sad thing. Right before she asked me, I got pregnant with a child and I lost the baby on six while we were shooting. I, I had a miscarriage during one of the most brutal scenes And here's the thing though, you know, that was so hard and I, it was so painful situation, but I wouldn't have been able to go and do Homeland if that, if I was carrying a child, it's brutal to be a director and be pregnant during, and now I have my beautiful son. I, we got pregnant on the second season, like at the beginning. So I was pregnant on both seasons of, of six, which people don't, don't really know about. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I cannot yeah. imagine. I've actually had a couple of miscarriages myself and Brutal. I cannot, it's horrible, especially horrible. like you don't know what's happening. No. And I was in Wilmington in North Carolina, the first season shooting a scene about Lena and Joe Graves baby that, that died. And that's when I was miscarrying at that grave scene talking about our dead baby. It was pretty brutal. And I was just hysterically crying. And the director was like, you cannot (sighs) cry. We want you to be holding it in. And Barry, Barry Sloan that I was working with and my mom was there with me. She drove up from Georgia to be with me because I was going through it and I was working. So I couldn't, you know, go to the hospital and stuff. And I started bleeding the night before. Yeah. And he, you know, Barry's like, you can do this. You got to hold it together. And after every take, I'd be like, (laughs) It was brutal. It's hard, but we got through it and that, and I stayed sober, you know, I stayed sober in my sex and love addiction and I didn't go act out and try not to feel my feelings. And when I look back at the 11 and a half years of my recovery and everything I've gone through and done, I stayed sober. And that is a miracle in itself. One of the first movies I saw when I was younger that I remember is Romeo and Juliet. It was like my favorite movie. And I remember seeing Michael White's butt, the lead actor, not Leonardo DiCaprio people. Like I'm a little older than that, but I saw Michael White's butt and I was like at six, I was like, Ooh, that's a cute butt. Like I shouldn't be watching that at six. I know it. Like my son would never be able to watch Romeo and Juliet. And then I remember thinking at the end of this movie, after they made love that these two people loved each other so much and it was so passionate. It was this secret and it was dirty and they were going to kill themselves over this love. Like someone's going to take some poison or someone's going to stab themselves. And I thought, that's it. That's what real marriage and love looks like. Somebody's got to be willing to die for the other person. Like someone's got to take some poison. And when I think about it now, and I was just talking to somebody about this, if somebody came up to me and said, so I met this guy you know, less than 12 hours ago, his family hates my family and somebody's already died between us and I'm going to have sex with him. And then we are going to try to run away from each other. It's going to be a dirty secret. And we're only 14 years old and we've been only known each other for two days. And then we're going to take some poison and act like we're dead, but then we're actually going to stab ourselves and really die. I'd be like, run for the hills. Like that's insanity. What are you talking about? You're like, sounds like a great movie. (laughs) Yeah. Like sign me up at six years old. I was like, ding, ding, ding. That's what I want. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my god right I know and like the whole idea of like lovers leap and like jumping off a cliff together or something yeah or even if you just think of any romance movie it's so unrealistic that's not what real love looks like nobody talks about picking up the dog poop taking out the bills the trash what a financial conversation looks like like nobody talks about that stuff instead we've got like you've got mail like it's a it's a push and a pull and finally they're together and it's like no relationships should not be dramatic sex and love addicts anonymous cleans up your entire life's relationships completely have you made some amends with people oh yeah (laughs) can you talk to me about some of those because that's Um, the hard work right there it is the hard work It, it is a lot of my amends are living amends And why they are is because it's not appropriate for me to reach out to exes and people I acted out with, especially being a married woman, especially if they're in a relationship. So we do not hurt people for just because we want to get it off our chest. So a lot of my amends, I wrote them out. I wrote them letters and I sent them to my sponsor and she then burned them. (laughs) How did you become an actress? I think uh, since I was so shy and dyslexic growing up, I was always interested in film and television and I loved not being in reality, like I said. So I grew up watching film and television and then I would find myself in my bedroom acting out scenes. But when I knew I wanted to become an actress, I got a small part on Remember the Titans, that movie, it came to Atlanta. And I auditioned for, you know, not the Titans, the opposite team that they played. And I got the part and I got, I was like cheerleader number two. And I got two lines and it was so exciting. And I shot the movie for almost four weeks and it was night shoots because it was like the football games were at night, most of them. So we shot like four p.m. to 4 a.m. and yeah I just loved it I loved that this all these people came together and they were like a happy family and they were all there to create something and the hair and the makeup and becoming someone else and as soon as I put on the wardrobe I become someone else and I just loved it and that's when I knew what I wanted to do when I grew up we all went to the theater to watch the movie like my mom and my whole family and friends and my part got cut no did you get mentioned in the credits at least oh yeah but like down at the bottom it wasn't like (laughs) but I remember thinking like wow I like got both ends of Hollywood at the same time like I got the job and got to do it and got all that high of being like on set and working and then I got the rejection like right away it set me up (laughs) exactly oh my god there's so much of it that oh god so much rejection You know, I always like to say I was like a closeted slut kind of like I looked proper and you would never know I was coming like I was a snake coming around the corner that you didn't see coming like that's you wouldn't see the hot mess coming at you. (laughs) Oh my God. Can I use that for the title? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it's the truth. You know, like I, I just look prim and proper. And then I was like a hot mess snake coming around to get you. I mean, I've played every character that has been just a horrible human being. I think Lena Graves is the best character I've ever played, like the kindest, sweetest character. But a lot of my parts are very dark and manipulative and, you know, and, you know, I I use the resting bitch face a lot. So I definitely think that helped me. But 
underneath is more like lean and graves, like very kind and sweet, but it's always fun to play the bad guy. You know, you don't get to do it in real life unless you want to be in a 12 step program later. But like, (laughs) I got to do it on screen. Like I got to kill some people. I got to try to kill some people. I got to be the horrible woman that's stalking. Like I've done all those things. Yeah. So I got to use that stuff. My dark side. Everybody has a dark side. What is it like to raise a child in Hollywood when you grew up so differently? I just want to keep him really grounded and I make him do chores already. He cleans the house. He vacuums. He dusts. He gets an allowance. He learns to know what a dollar is. If he breaks a toy, he is not getting another toy. It is, does not, the world does not revolve around him. If my husband and I are having a conversation and he tries to interrupt, I'm very, we're very clear about, hold on, mommy and daddy are talking. We'll, we'll tell you in a minute, like we're not ignoring you, but you can't interrupt. So I just want to just, you know, instill like skills. I want to be able to put him out on a street at 12 years old and he will survive. He will know how to do the dishes. He will know how to do the laundry. He will have a job at 16. He is not going to get a brand new car. <laughs> like I just really want my child to be different than I was and earn the value of a dollar and know how to save. He has a piggy bank. He puts his savings away. If he wants a toy at the store, he has to get money out of his piggy bank and give it to me. So, and he's three years old. He just turned three years old. So he's doing great. And I just don't want him to get sucked into the not real life of Hollywood because it's not real. You sound like a good mommy to me. Oh, thank you. (laughs) It's a lot of work on myself. I probably would have been the worst mom ever 11 years ago. The worst. Are there like specific things that you remember where you're like, oh, cringe? Oh my God. I mean, just read the book. You'll cringe. I need to. I'm going to. Oh, you need to get, you are going to, I mean, my mom read it. Like it's very detailed. It's very, it's all out there. So if you want to hear all those, you just got to read the book. <laughs> oh my just- God. Like, I want to know how your mom felt. Oh, that was a beautiful moment that I'll share. She called on FaceTime. The book dropped and she read it in a day and a half and she called on FaceTime and she was hysterically crying. And I was like, oh no, she read it. Oh no. Because it talks a lot about her, you know, moments we've had or, you know, moments we've kind of had that I've amplified a little bit. And she said, for the first time in a decade that you've said you've had this addiction, I finally know what it is. Like I finally understand your addiction to sex and love. It, she just never could really get it. And a lot of people don't get it. Um, and then the second thing she said, and I've done some of those things. And it was really? just, oh my yeah. God, that just and then I started crying. that she related to that. Yeah, my own mom and my sister and my dad and my uncle and just- people all over the world and they're just reaching out and telling me how much it means to them. They don't feel alone or they see that their partner's behavior had nothing to do with him, them. And that is why I wrote the book, like to help other people. It's not about me. I actually feel like I didn't even write the book. I read it the other day and I was like, wait, this is really good. And my husband looked at me, he's like, yeah, you wrote it. And I was like, I don't remember writing it. (laughs) So it doesn't even feel like it's mine. It felt like my higher power and my God like came through me and wrote it. Does that make sense? Like it does. I get it was messages. bigger than me. You know, yeah. like it was, it was something I never wanted to do. I was never planning on doing it, never planning on breaking my anonymity. And it was like, just this thing like came out of me that I really didn't, I just kind of stood back and allowed it to. 
what an amazing reaction too for her to give you that. Yeah. Yeah. This is really healing. Aw. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? Oh my God. I want to know what he thinks about being a sex and love addict. And if it's his generation, he sees a lot of that because I feel like the older generation were denied their reality and had to just suit up and show up. And was there moments in his life that he was like, oh, wow, I, I wasn't completely present. I used outside isms to not be present and feel my feelings. And I'm just wondering, did he have a person he did that with or that relationship? <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting. And I've never had that conversation with him. I think I also want to pull up like that list of 40 questions. Do it, please. And if you're listening, pull it up. It's the best question there ever. And it will really open your eyes to a lot of things. And you are what not is the alone. website? So go to SLAA. 40 self-diagnosed questionnaire and it will just pop up. I okay, mean, it's cool. Everywhere. I'm going to yeah. definitely put that in the show notes. <laughs> yes. I'll send you the link so you can have it. I'll okay. send it to you. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. Okay. Well, let people know how they can find your book, connect with you, all of that jazz. Yeah. So Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. It is everywhere worldwide. Barnes and Noble, Amazon, the audio audible book is out you can go to secretlifenovel.com you can get it from me a signed copy for 25 bucks you can get the audible there for a little cheaper you can get the ebook there also and then if you want to follow me please follow me at the brianne davis and if you have any questions about the program about my book about anything dm me i try to answer all my dms or you can listen to me on Secret Life Podcast where other people tell their secrets and let go of their last bit of shame or stigma. And it's everything from body dysmorphia for men, using abortions as birth control, suicide attempts with a shotgun in their chest, all while hating motherhood, every kind of secret you can imagine. And we just released our 50th episode. And I'm just really proud of giving other people the chance to let go of that last bit of shame or secrets. I love the content that you're creating. How Thank you. amazing. Thank you. <laughs> now let's switch it over to grandpa. Very intense interview you had there. Yeah. What do you think about uh, being a love and sex addict? Well, the funny part is, is that he's trying to distinguish that people can be a sex addict and they can be a love addict. To me, I think it's a little intermingled. I don't think it's so easy to separate the actual physical act from the emotional act. I think that they do play a part with each other more than less. What does that really mean? I think whether you're a man or a woman, you're in search of having a relationship that is complete and fulfilling. You want to have someone that can be, that can relate to you emotionally, can be participate in whatever you're doing and building a relationship of communication is just as important as the sexual act, but also having that, that chemistry and that relationship of being physically together, I think is also uh, an important ingredient that's necessary to have a healthy relationship as well. So I think you need both. Did you ever uh, do some of those things in your childhood or? Well, I certainly had a few relationships, but the fact is, is that whoever I went out with, you do have a sense of attachment. And the fact is, is that if you 
uh, go out on a date or you have a relations with someone and you drop the ball or you are distracted with something else or trying to go with someone else, like asking more than one girl to the prom, uh, that doesn't usually work, especially when they're friends. Then you end up not having a date to the prom. I think it's very important that we do not live in la-la land. It's okay to dream about things and to want to ascertain certain things. But I think we also have to have a sense of responsibility, accountability, and reality. I think that you brought up an interesting point also, is that the relationships that we first observe, good or bad, have a tremendous effect on us. And isn't it a fact that her mom did not have a very strong relationship with her husband, even though they have two girls together and the father had special times with the daughters, but not really showing the kind of relationship that you're supposed to have at the head of the household with the father and the mother. And it sometimes can leave mixed messages. And I don't know all the details of the relationship with the mother with the daughters, but obviously this search for love, this search for a deep relationship was lacking. And then you search in other places to see if you can get it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually looked up those 40 questions for self-diagnosis that she was talking about. Mm -hmm. And some of those questions I feel like apply to a lot of people. Like, do you get high from sex or romance? And then do you crash? Have you had sex at inappropriate times, inappropriate places, or with inappropriate people? Have you had sex with someone you didn't want to have sex with? Have you believed that sex or a relationship will make your life bearable? Do you believe that someone can fix you? Well, it's very interesting because we all need encouragement. We all need sometimes a mentor to show us positive things that we can relate to in our lives. But the fact is, is that all of us are searching for a natural high. All of us are searching for things that make us feel good. But we have to be careful. And that's why even in our own religion, as you know, the more orthodox, and you know, the Chabad has the same type of feelings and certain certain other religions and cultures do too, where they try to have a, a woman and a man at a young age grow together and be part of each other. And it's sometimes a learning process where having too much experience or too much experimentation, again, loses the sensitivity of what it's really all about. Part of having a workable relationship is exactly that. You have to work at it. You have to work at it every day. There's going to be always a lot of differences between men and women. Uh, Part of building one's communication skills is being able to get along and figuring out a way to work it all out, no matter what. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Hold up. 